The first reading this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And we continue with Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent, Of the great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. What's in a name? What's in a name? To which uh, I think the answer is not much in our culture. Uh, Little more than a label to distinguish one person from another. Uh, I may have mentioned before that we had uh, substantial trouble naming our son. Um, uh, You know you're in trouble when you're cradling a six-week-old baby in one hand and uh, a book of uh, baby names in the other. Uh, In the end, we settled on Toby, and uh, you might know that's actually from the Hebrew, Uh, meaning he is good, he is good. 
uh, often used with reference to God in the Bible, God is good. Uh, it was and it remains an aspirational title, um, uh, by which I mean that uh, we would uh, see Toby acknowledge God as good and uh, delight in it. In that sense, uh, how we name Toby actually bears some resemblance to the way names were given in uh, ancient uh, Israel. Uh, they were often given to denote, as somebody says, uh, somebody wrote, a parent's hope for their child or an assessment of the child's character. Uh, they, they, they were often given to say something significant about who or what that child is or, who, or what the parent hopes that child will uh, become. That is to say, they are more significant than just labels. Uh, they, have, they often have a substantial meaning. And what is often the case with human names uh, in the Old Testament is always the case with God's names, the names that God gives himself. He gives himself several names uh, in the Old Testament. They're all significant. And uh, as James said this morning, we start a, a new series looking at some of the most common names that God gives himself in the Old Testament. And if you want to see what names we're going to be looking at and the order in which they come, we've produced a little postcard called Names of God. It's available at the back, and it has the names and the dates that we're looking at them. The point is this. We want to look at the names of God because by looking at those names of God, we will learn things about the God whom we worship whom we know in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, the more we know him, who he is, what he does, the more we can enjoy him. And this morning we begin with the first word uh, in the Bible that appears uh, for God. It appears in Genesis 1, verse 1. Uh, if you'd like to have it in front of you, it appears over 2,500 times in the Old Testament. And it is the word Elohim. And actually, it's the word for God throughout chapter 1 of Genesis, Elohim. And uh, the first thing to say about this word, Elohim, is that actually, it's not really a name. Um, it's more a way of referring to God as God. Um, in, in other words, it's more of a class of being. In other words, more like the word divine, um, so some names we'll see, to preempt the series a little bit, some names will, uh, God gives himself are personal names, a little bit like my name, Paul, that's my personal name. Some of the names that God gives himself have that sort of sense. Some of the names that God gives himself are more like titles, in the same way that I might have the title Reverend or Mr. Some of the names God has function like that. And some, and particularly this one, functions much more as a class, so in the sense of, you know, I am a human. Uh, well, Elohim refers to God as God as divine. It probably comes from the word El, which appears uh, quite often in the Old Testament for God, but usually is attached to another word that tells us something about God. So a classic example of that would be Emmanuel, God with us. And El means mighty one or powerful one. But Elohim is plural in the Hebrew, but when it's used of God, when it's used of the God of the Bible, it's practically always used with a singular verb or a singular modifier. That is to say, the fact that the word is in the plural does not indicate a plurality of gods. It's not a plural of number. It's a plural of intensification 
of majesty, of fullness, which Hebrew often does. In other words, what it's saying is the God of the Bible is one and he is mighty in all its fullness. He is powerful in all its fullness. He is the fully mighty one, the fully powerful one. What does that mean? And what does it mean for us? We always need to be careful when we're with the Bible that we don't take categories that we conceive of here on earth and then just extrapolate them and make them bigger and assume God is that. So we're not just to sort of think of what we think about mighty and then just make it a bit bigger and say, well, that's what God must be like. It's the other way around. God always defines, he always tells us what he means by words he uses about himself. He does that in his word, and he does that in his works. So we're going to spend a little bit of time in Genesis 1, a little bit of time in the first few verses of Psalm 19, to listen to what Elohim tells us about what it means for him to be Elohim, for what it means for him to be mighty, powerful. So uh, come back to Genesis 1, if you find that helpful, beginning of the Bibles. Uh, It gets you to Genesis 1.1. We're just going to walk through it very slowly. And we're going to start with the first five words in English. In the beginning, Elohim created. Stop there. That means, friends, that all space and all time and all creation had a beginning and required a creator. But not so Elohim. Elohim is the one who is Elohim is the one who always has been. Elohim is the one who always will be. He is, in and of himself, self-sufficient. He is self-sustaining. He is self-fulfilling. He is the uncreated creator. He is the uncaused cause. And there's all sorts of wonderful things that describe this in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. Here's a few examples. Uh, examples. Elohim is eternal, Psalm 90. Before the mountains were, brought, uh, were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is um, in all places and at all times fully present. Here's the psalmist again. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. He's, he's never needy. Or dependent. He's never lacking in and of himself. So Psalm 50, uh, people being a bit worried that God might be hungry. He says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens. Because I don't need that. Paul picks this up when he's preaching to the Athenians in Acts 17. He says, God is the one who is not served by human hands. We'll come back to that in a minute. As if he needed anything... Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And as you go through the scriptures, you see too that Elohim is is the one who is infinitely powerful, fully powerful, fully just, fully loving, fully faithful, fully merciful, fully good, fully pure. And all of this is summarized by that great biblical word, glory. He is fully glorious. He's fully satisfied in and of himself. And one of the reasons for that, perhaps the principal reason, is because he is a community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Eternally existing, eternally loving each other, eternally enjoying each other, eternally serving one another, eternally 
praising one another. He is fully glorious. Now, okay, what does that mean for us? Many things. Here's one. It means that we were not created to fulfill any need in God. We were not created to fulfill any deficiency in God, to complete him in any way. Rather, it's the other way around. God created in order to expand the sphere of his glory. Jonathan Edwards used to talk about God as being like a a fountain who out of his fullness breaks its banks and and, and fills other things. He's glorified as uh, other things experience his glory and are filled by his glory and enjoy his fullness. He is glorified as as people see his glory, as they experience it, as they embrace it, as they enjoy it. That means that we glorify God supremely as we receive from him. As we are satisfied by him, as we embrace his love and his mercy and his justice and his purity. And that, I think, changes the way we think about several aspects of the Christian life. It changes the way we think about how and why we gather on a Sunday like this. It changes the way we think about how and why we serve God uh, with our various gifts. It changes the how and why I think of things like obedience to God. I didn't know how you felt this morning as you rolled out of bed. Um, I don't know how you think, what fills your heart sometimes as you stand before a week of maybe prepping... um, Sunday school or a house group or um, some other uh, aspect of of ministry in church. I don't know how you feel as you approach an area that you know is perhaps an area of weakness or an area of temptation and you know the Lord is calling you to obedience and as you face that particular struggle or potential struggle, how your heart uh, feels as it faces that. But I think this truth about Elohim helps us approach those things because it reminds us that we glorify God as we receive from him. That nothing we do is meant to meet his needs. Rather, everything we do is designed to meet our needs. So when we gather for worship, as one writer put it, we are here for God in the sense that we are here to receive from him as a thirsty man goes to a well to receive water, or as a hungry man uh, goes to an inn to receive food. Uh, We come as those who are sinners needing forgiveness and needing salvation. If God never looks to us to supply him with what he needs or with what he lacks, it means fundamentally that all interactions with God are from him for us. They are from him for us. If God wants us to obey him, which he does, if he wants us to serve him, which he does, it must mean that it is good for us to be serving him. Good for us to be obedient to him. Because, of course, it is the way that God supplies us. It's the way that God meets our needs. It's the way that God fulfills us. It's the way that God gives us meaning. It's the way in which God can communicate his fullness to us. God calls us to serve him 
that we might enjoy participating in his divine life, that we might enjoy participating in his plans and his purposes, that he might fill us moment by moment with the grace and the gifts that we need to do that which he's called us to do. As we stand at the beginning of the week facing this task or facing this battle, we do so, we glorify God as we say, Lord, fill us with what we need to do that which you call us to do. That's why in John 15, Jesus says that obedience leads to joy. It leads to joy because, because in our obedience, we are saying, God, fill us with your moral purity. Fill us with your justice. Fill us with your ethical beauty. Give us everything I need to enjoy what it is to be like you morally. Do you see? That's why obedience leads to joy. We're not, we're not being, a, uh, obedience isn't about cowering before some kind of power-hungry megalomaniac who's got an ego problem, who needs us to serve him in some way like some CEO needs us to serve him to run around doing things that he couldn't ordinarily do. He doesn't need us like that. He's not deficient. He's not lacking. He calls us to serve him so that we can enjoy him in all his fullness as he gives us all that we need to serve him and as we experience what it's like to be caught up in the plans and purposes of God and taste ethical purity and taste moral beauty completely changes the way we approach obedience and service. Secondly, Elohim is the God who is fully and completely in and of himself, but notice he does not keep himself to himself. He delights to make his glory known. He delights to expand his glory so others can experience it and embrace it and enjoy it. Let's come back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. What does it mean to be Elohim? Well, look at the universe. Or, as Psalm 19 puts it, listen to the universe. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. Now, friends, space is big. I spent three years studying astronomy. That's about all I can remember, but it's pretty significant. Space is big, and it's beautiful. Um, A few things. that I didn't need to go to university to discover. Light travels at 186,000 miles a second. Okay, quick. Even at that speed, it takes eight minutes to reach us from the sun, our nearest star. It takes four years to reach us from the nearest neighboring star. It takes over 100,000 years to travel across our galaxy. And that uh, is one of a couple of trillion galaxies in our universe. Now, what is the point of it all? The psalmist tells us the glorious galactic grandeur of the heavens is a gift from God that speaks of his infinite glory. It speaks of his transcendent power as creator and also of his gloriously uh, creative uh, artistry. Creation sings of God's glory. It sings of the power and might of Elohim. One writer said, I like this, they make a statement about God's glory, but it is an understatement. Again, so what? What does that mean for us? 
What it means, if, if it's been given for us for a purpose, what is the purpose? The purpose is that we would recognize the infinite glory of our Creator. Now, again, why? Well, remember, God doesn't need anything from us. He's not vain. He's not proud. He's not done it because he loves uh, to be complimented. In a way, you know what those people are like who do things because really we know what they're looking for. They're looking for the pat on the back because they're slightly needy. That, that, that's not God. He's not looking for our admiration in that sense. The reason, I think, is this. Our hearts were made by this infinitely glorious creator. And they were made to experience and enjoy his glory. They were made to be fulfilled by him, fulfilled with him, fulfilled in him. Elohim is the one who uh, delights to fill others with his fullness. And so the job of creation as it sings of God's glory is to keep pointing to the capacity of our hearts for glory. If you've been made by this God to experience the fullness of his glory, and if this universe is just a shadow of his glory, know how big the capacity of your heart is for glory. Now, our hearts, we know we've been made by a glorious creator for glory because just look at your hearts. Just look at the hearts of the world around you. They're constantly seeking fulfillment. They're constantly seeking glory. They're constantly seeking awe. We're drawn to it like moths to flame. But what do we do in our sin? Romans 1 tells us, in our sin, in our foolish pursuit of a supposed greater freedom in autonomy from our creator, we go looking for fulfillment and satisfaction and fullness, not in the creator, but in the creation, in the signpost, in money, and prestige and power and experience and relationships or whatever it might be. Now, those things can be good. good. They're gifts from God. But if you go looking for fulfillment in them, satisfaction in them, you are always going to be disappointed because you were made by the glorious creator. Look at the universe. He is the one for whom, or it points to the one for whom you were made. Elohim is bigger than the universe, more glorious than the universe, more awesome than the universe, more beautiful than the universe, which means that if you were given the entirety of the universe in all its materiality. And if you were given every experience that you could conceive of that the universe could in and of itself provide, you would be disappointed because you are made for something bigger than that. You are made to be filled by the glory of him who made the universe and of which the universe is just a signpost to us. And we see that, do we not? In the disappointments and the damaged lives and the addictions and the restlessness and the anxieties and the fears that flow from trying to fill ourselves with anything less than Elohim. Now listen to those who've turned to Elohim. Listen to the sound of true freedom. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. You are worthy to receive our hearts, Elohim, because you created all things that we might go running to and give our hearts to. You created them. 
And you created us for you. You alone are big enough to fill our hearts. That means that for those with eyes to see, and it is a gift, this sort of spiritual sight, of course, is a gift of the Holy Spirit. That shiver of wonder that we feel as we gaze at the night sky is the whisper of Elohim saying, my glory of which this universe is a shadow, a foretaste, is what you were made for. You were made for so much more than so many of the things that we preoccupy ourselves with and put in first place and sometimes think will satisfy and fulfill us. One writer said this, we're made for a bigger story than we could possibly write, a bigger kingdom than we could possibly build, a bigger and better purpose than we could possibly conceive of. We were made for the maker of all. Elohim says to us through the universe, I alone can fulfill you with a fullness that is greater than all the stars in the sky. Elohim is our creator who alone can fulfill us and who alone can make us fruitful. And that's verse 2 of Genesis 1 with which we must finish. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the spirit of the deep, and the spirit of Elohim was hovering over the waters. And the rest of chapter 1, we find Elohim bringing order out of chaos, bringing life where there was no life. That is what Elohim does. One writer commented that we, uh, in our sin, have sent God to the corner of the cosmos so he will not get underfoot. And the writer went on to say that is tragic because sin and the forces of chaos abound in our world. If ever we needed the Elohim who brings order out of chaos, it is now. If ever we need the Elohim who brings new life in the place of uh, sterility, uh, in the place of barrenness, it is now. And We might want to think in the days ahead of those areas of our life where we need Elohim's ongoing creative touch where we need him to bring his new life, where we need him to bring order out of what is at the moment chaos. And when we think that he can't possibly do it, I think we look at Psalm 19 and we look at the universe to see something of the power at his disposal. And we look at the cross, which actually, incidentally, is, the Bible tells us, the supreme demonstration of the glory of God. We look at the cross to see the personal commitment of God to fill us sinners with his glory and to bring us that new life, to bring us order out of chaos. And we face what lies before us in the confidence that through the word of the gospel and the power of his spirit, he is committed to bring order and new life. And we face things with hopefulness and dependence on him. Amen.